Excess for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I hope that you Hey everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. As always, I am your host, Nico, and with me to cover Uncanny X-Men, as always, is our amazing Nightcrawler, Jonah. Hello everyone, and hello, Nico. With us today to cover this very special episode that kicks off a very special event for us here at the Cage Club Network, not just on X's for Podcast, but over on MCU.html as well is Team Champion, soon to be Team Dazzler, the brawny beast himself, Kyle. Hey, guys. And it wouldn't be a special event, and we couldn't cross over to HTML without my partner in all crimes that I commit, Captain Britain's very own Kevo. Hello, I am welcome. Hello, you are welcome. And I couldn't think of a better time to have all three super amazing, super brilliant, super sexy uber nerds here on the show, because... We're discussing the event that created the idea of the X-Men event. We're talking about the story that turned X-Men from a comic book to a franchise and a legend. This is the Dark Phoenix saga. You may have heard a little something about an upcoming film called Dark Phoenix. I think we've heard a lot of things. I wish we heard more good. But here we're going to discuss the incredible comic book arc that transformed Jean Grey from a mutant with a family and a team to a nightmare terrorizing the galaxy. So I feel like this has been the longest road here, Jonah. We started with Giant Size Number 1. We kicked things off with a love of Nightcrawler. And your experience with X-Men has been crazy and transformative. And we've covered so much. How does it feel to finally be at Uncanny X-Men 129, the kickoff to the Dark Phoenix Saga? I am so ready. I feel like everything was leading up to this moment, to this great series of issues that are going to be so well written and so amazing to read not to say that i haven't enjoyed everything we've read so far but this arc in particular and what's going to come is going to be something magical and something that really defined the x-men and many of their comics that were surrounding it for years and years to come including all of that we get introduced to some amazing characters from this arc and i am so excited and so ready to have them be mainstays I completely agree. We are in for some legendary appearances that are referenced constantly to this day because the X-Men have terrible trouble moving forward for a comic book about evolution. Kyle, we spent so much time covering so much champion and much champion and much champion. And finally, as I promised, you get to read something not just good, but something incredible and amazing. I'm so excited to have you here covering Dazzler as she kicks things off. And then when the other X-Men show up that you know from Champions and you're going to soon know from Defenders, what was it like finally getting to read three really kick-ass issues? After having to read through Champions, being able to read this set of books is, it's a breath of fresh air. I am so happy that I've been able to read this story again. I read it a couple years ago when I was first doing my exploration of the X-Men, and it just makes me feel so happy to see these characters in such a strong place, and seeing really great introductions for 
two of my favorite characters. A hundred percent. I know we got to cover some John Byrne before in Champions, but this is truly John Byrne seamlessly blending with the writing in a way that is... Again, transformative of the medium. I know I'm maybe a little partial to this arc, but it is critically loved. And Kevo, you're another guy who's had to read so much that I wouldn't maybe call hallmarks of the franchise, but you're finally here and you're on some amazing Claremont and the art is beautiful. And I know you have an appreciation for beautiful art as a comic book artist. How do you feel being a part of the first really big X-Men event? You know, it's interesting. I don't think I realized all of these characters were all introduced at the same time. When I first met a young comic book loving man in college who forced me to start reading certain comic book runs, he had me read a certain X title. What was that title, my darling? I believe I had you read Astonishing X-Men by Joss Whedon because I saw your love of Buffy as my in. It was your in, and you used it well. Actually, I think your in first was Veronica Mars, because that was still on the air, but that's not the point. I have read that arc where Kitty and Emma Frost reunite, and there is that old rivalry between them, and so it's fun to see where that comes from. It's weird to see that Dazzler comes from this. She's just sort of there, but she's beautiful. I do agree. In many ways, Dazzler reads like... I. I don't know, guys. She's she's there, and I love her. But she's there. But I love her. And now she can be wherever she wants to be, and that's all that matters. Razzle Dazzle. And as always, to cover the credits that put this incredible issue together, Chris Claremont and John Byrne, storytellers extraordinaire, working together to tell the best possible story they could. This is a little over halfway through the incredible run that the two of them set out to tell and it's a little disappointing to feel like we're that close to the end of it but i've had such an amazing journey jonah has it been exciting to watch the art transform on uncanny as it's evolved to this point yes the art is one of those things that i think the x-men really got right almost right away there was nothing wrong with the art in the earlier issues that we read but once john byrne came on and started doing a lot more of the issues it was really transformative and I think is part of why X-Men became elevated and what made X-Men X-Men. You can have a great series and you can have great characters and great writing, great plots and all this great stuff writing wise. But if your art isn't on point in matching what you're writing, it can make or break your comic. And I think the art has been absolutely astounding to see evolve. I agree. There are panels specifically of Jason Wingard where I just sit there with my jaw on the floor. I'm just like every beard hair. And I can't wait to sink my teeth into these stories. Jonah, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Uncanny 129 to 131? Uncanny X-Men number 129. The team's getting ready to leave Muir Island. Literally no one there wants to be an X-Men. We say goodbye to Banshee and the team heads back to the mansion. Charles is trying to whip his X-Men into shape despite Cyclops saying he's going too hard. The Hellfire Club's council discuss their plans for Jean and the X-Men. And we get the introduction of Emma Frost. Cerebro picks up two new mutants. Charles takes Wolverine, Colossus, and Storm to Chicago where they meet Catherine Kitty Pride, a 13-year-old soon-to-be mutant. When their ice cream date gets interrupted, the, for once, clever X-Men are captured by Emma's men and Kitty discovers her powers. Uncanny X-Men number 130. Jean, Nightcrawler, and Scott are in New York City looking for the other mutant, though their entire moves are being watched. Jason continues his plan for making Jean the Black Queen, and we get introduced to the singing mutant diva Dazzler. 
Jason kisses Jean, who is surprisingly okay with it. Scott is not, however. The Hellfire Club men attack and only lose due to Dazzler using her powers. Kitty harnesses her powers and calls the X-Men. Jean and Scott save Nightcrawler and head to Chicago to save the team. Uncanny X-Men number 131. The uncaptured X-Men save Kitty from being chased and they hatch a plan to save the other X-Men. We get to see the X-Men basically naked as Emma starts her torture on Storm. Kitty saves Wolverine and her future beau as Jean engages Emma in a psychic battle. In a last-ditch effort, Emma tries one final side strike bringing the entire building down on them. The X-Men escape and the day is saved! Except Jean seems off. Oh, and Charles literally chose not to save his team. It is not as simple as Charles chose not to save his team. It is a lot more like... Charles ultimately didn't think he really needed to do much, and indifferently chose not to save his team. There's more nuance to it. He's a bigger asshole earlier. Charles is such a dick this arc. Oh my god. He's a jerk. Charles Xavier is a jerk. So, I think the most important thing I want to talk about to get this rolling is a little bit of the journey it took us to get here. When we started this whole shebang, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Storm, Sunfire, Banshee, and Thunderbird were called together by Xavier to join Cyclops on a mission to rescue Marvel Girl, Polaris, Havoc, Angel, and Iceman. In the course of this, they formed a much too much, much too much, too much too large X-Men. Marvel Girl, Polaris, Havoc, Angel, Iceman, and Sunfire departed, and Thunderbird departed shortly thereafter. Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Storm, Banshee, and Phoenix continued on as the X-Men, though Phoenix was lost alongside Beast and believed the other X-Men dead. Eventually, Phoenix, Polaris, Havoc, and Multiple Man joined the X-Men on Muir Island as they defeated Proteus. At the start of this arc, Banshee, Polaris, Havoc, Multiple Man all decide to leave the X-Men. I'm... like roster dazed here that is so many x-men that have come and gone at this point jonah can you even keep track of all of them at this point i know i kept having to double check and i even called you i was like jonah iceman was krakoa 8 bobby right yeah it's not surprisingly that you forgot iceman because he is very removable from uncanny but yeah it's a little reminiscent of giant says x-men number one where we have so many mutants or people who can join the x-men and they literally all tell scott no we don't want to be part of your team. And I think it's, I thought it was really funny. I mean, I understand not everybody wants to be an X-Man. Not everybody wants to live on that knife's edge and live in this do or die situation. It's one of the things that I really appreciate that Dazzler mentions later on, that she just thinks the way they live is terrifying. Ultimately, to be an X-Man is to constantly be afraid and to know fear. Kyle, this was a massive departure from what we've covered in Champions in terms of tone and seriousness. One of the things that I was most excited for us to cover was you having an actual team to look at and bond with and not constantly worry if someone's going to be offhandedly removed. Coming into this, knowing that the X-Men's roster was going to be solid for most of this arc, did that kind of set you up for a different read than you've had going into Champions where the roster has constantly changed? I completely forgot how well this team worked together. And it kind of threw me off after dealing with what was it, like 25 issues of teammates that fought each other all the time? Constantly, yeah. I think it's like 30 total issues yeah. of a bunch of people who just don't get along. Right. So it it was definitely really, really awesome. Now, Kevo, 
this is your first time reading a team book here. I know you read a few issues here and there, but this is your first time sitting down to an arc about the X-Men. This is a humongous change from Captain Britain, where it's Captain Britain and two side characters at a time. I think because the format is very different from Captain Britain, that helped as well. It's more pages per issue, so there's more room for all of the different characters to have space to at least speak, if not have too much focus put on themselves. That certainly helped a lot. Starting the story, as Jonah pointed out, with so many X-Men departing, helped create a sense of continuity, a sense of heaviness to kick things off. There's something about the color choices, the amount of solid color that's shaded on the first two pages, the simplicity of the art transition from jet to jet on the next page that also creates progressive melancholy that I think really sets the tone for this arc. This is the first time I think the X-Men's art defines the book just as much as the story. And I, for one, was so excited to see all of the ways the art informed the narrative. I completely agree with you on that. I think the art really hit the nail on the head. Of, these aren't the most happiest issues. These are actually some pretty dark and much more mature than we've seen the X-Men get. We're introduced to a little bit more scary villains. And I think that was really cool. I think that was... A- yeah, I agree. The visuals are really great in this. A lot of the art direction is really great. There's a lot of really amazing panels. The way the X-Men burst into the mansion, that team shot is really great. Kitty and Storm sitting across from each other at the malt shop. It's a lot of really awesome ankles, a lot of really great character shots that help set the tone very well. And I know we don't get to regularly talk about everybody who works on the book, but it needs to be said that Bob Sharon's colors really help to define so much of what's going on. The brightness of his yellows, the intensity of his reds, the darkness of the shading he uses to convey shadow, especially on people's faces. I feel like the art goes so far to helping me feel the intensity that Claremont is trying to reach with a fever pitch right away. This book is nonstop, punch after punch, and I don't feel like anything's buying time. I feel like everything that happens, from Jean having her flashes from Jason Wingard on the plane, to Xavier being like, I'm home, and it took long enough, I need to fix you people. Like, what the fuck is wrong with Xavier? From the minute he gets there, he is like super dick. He's a little diva, and I don't care for him. Charles was upset because he wasn't the big man on spaceship when he was with Lalandra, so he has to be the big man at home. And it's just, for the X-Men's leader, for their non-combative leader, the one who's really supposed to be calling the shots, Charles comes off terrible. He doesn't listen to Cyclops. He's pushing the X-Men too hard. He's not really teaching them. It seems like he's trying to make up for feeling inferior in space, and it's not cute. Jonah, that's almost verbatim my note. My note is, Xavier's power grab here seems to be a response to the powerlessness he experienced as Lalandra's consort, but it's so petty. Can I also mention that he doesn't realize that the X-Men aren't the children that he he originally trained. Like, he's he threatens to give Wolverine demerits, and he he's, at, he's treating them like children. They're adults. And he blames any failure for the team to work cohesively by their old format on Scott's leadership. 
it's almost as if he's saying there's no such thing as the individual and that all groups come together to function the same way, which we know isn't really Xavier. Claremont always wrote a kind of dark, twisted Xavier at all times, and this is some of that height of Xavier dickery. Xavier really is a jerk, and I don't blame Logan for being pissed off. Logan's an adult. He has no need for this. As Scott pointed out, the only two people who are relatively close to a kid's age are Nightcrawler and Colossus, which I think are really pushing it because... Colossus is a little bit of a wet blanket, but he is much older than maybe some of the the original five started off when they were first introduced to the X-Men. And Nightcrawler also comes off a lot more mature. Charles infantilizing them is really a weird dynamic that he's trying to push on them. And it's just going to cause issues, as we see. I believe that the X-Men range from Colossus at about 19 years old to Cyclops at about 25 and Kitty is going to come in at a sharp 13 and a half and certainly offset that average age. It's going to be a really different experience having an actual kid again. And I wonder if that's part of what they were trying to set up. Xavier needs a student. These are not students. And giving him Kitty gives him, you know, a distraction to point at. There's a really incredible moment for those of us who have been playing the continuity game. At one point, Jason Wingard says that the Hellfire Club has a tap on the precious Cerebro and that every scrap of data in its memory banks is ours for the asking. Your man Warhawk did his bugging work well. There really was a purpose to Warhawk. I do not think that Warhawk was originally planned for that, but they had no idea what to do with that shoehorned issue in. So they were like, well, how do they get this information to know where Kitty is? And I think they were like, wait, we could use that one issue from that really forgettable villain. I think that's an example of where after the fact, they're able to make something work. He just has a secret boss and he really does nothing. They manage to make it work. And it does make me not hate that issue as much. It's really interesting. In retrospect, it gives me a little bit more respect for it. That page, however, is also the daring, the dashing, the deadly, the dangerous introduction of one Miss Emma Frost. It would be foolish to discuss this arc without discussing its inspiration. This arc was in many ways inspired by the Avengers, not the comic book Avengers. In the UK, there was a television series known as The Avengers starring Patrick McNee as John Steed. He was a smart, dashing secret agent in a bowler hat and had a cane sword, and he was just the goddamn coolest. I grew up watching it. I thought it was terrific. His second partner in the series was named Emma Peel, and at one point, they faced off against a nefarious group known as the Hellfire Club. Chris Claremont grew up loving the Avengers and was super inspired by them, giving us one Miss Emma Frost as a member of the Hellfire Club in the pages of Uncanny X-Men. So it's a really cool little way that Chris Claremont was able to pay tribute to his heroes as well. That is super interesting to hear, but what I do know is how much I love Emma Frost. She is not the Emma Frost that I know and love, but I know she will get there eventually, and seeing her finally appear and i know that all the different things that she's capable of i think she's probably one of the mutants who looks are very deceiving and i think emma is probably one of the more powerful villains the x-men are going to face and i'm just i'm excited to see what kind of torture she pulls before we get into her character growth she has some really weird uncomfortable tricks up her sleeve Kyle, had you remembered that this was the origin of the full Hellfire Club, Emma Frost, Kitty Pride, Dazzler? 
when you began rereading Dark Phoenix Saga, did you remember you were in for so many dazzling debuts? I really didn't. I forgot that this was the place where Dazzler came in. I forgot that they introduced the entire leadership of the Hellfire Club. I really thought that we were just seeing Emma and Jason Wingard. That was pretty cool. Or at least we see their shadows. Yeah, I want to pay a little more tribute to that. We get to see the shadow of Jason Wingard projecting the real mastermind against the wall again as well. So the shadows in this book play such an important role. There's such an important role that what's seen and what's unseen plays, and it's a really exciting story to watch unfold. I do think one of the only pacing issues I have is Emma Frost's introduction to her introduction as secret Miss Emma Frost, headmistress of a Massachusetts school looking to abduct Kitty. It's all a little smooshed together. Within a page and a half or two pages, she's met Kitty Pride and the X-Men, and she's walked past them, and Wolverine's like, she gives me the heebie-jeebies, and kind of says nothing about it, which is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. And it's within two panels that she's getting malted with Aurora, making semi-racially uncomfortable comments. This is the only real lull for me in the quality of the story. This is the only time I say, all right, the pacing could have been a little better. I cannot defend what Kitty said, but one thing I didn't know that Kitty was introduced as 13 and a half. That is very young, very young. And something that I think they did well was capturing the voice of a teenager. She says something really pretty bad. I think it makes sense that Kitty says it because she's still young and she doesn't know better, but it doesn't make it right. I'm not going to defend what she said, but I think having Kitty say something like that kind of leaves room for her to grow to learn, okay, I should not have said it that way. That's not something I should have said at all. She's just some white girl who grew up in Chicago. She does. I don't think she knows better yet. This is also in the late 70s. So, yeah, same, especially when you consider the era and the fact that she's a dopey young kid. She means it well. White people always mean it well when they say stupid things like that. They learn eventually, you hope. And Kitty Pride does come on to learn quite a bit. She and Aurora's relationship becomes one of the defining factors of the series. This pacing works for me really well from here on out. The way the X-Men are defeated and captured, filling out the rest of the book is a really exciting action sequence. Jonah and I in the last arc had one of the best arcs of X-Men so far. We had the Mutant X saga starring Proteus, and that was kind of non-stop, over-the-top reality-altering. There weren't really fights like there are in this issue. And I think it was a really good way to show us a side of the X-Men we hadn't seen in a while. I completely agree. I think the action in this was probably some of the best we've seen overall. The Proteus arc had much different combat than what we're used to because we, they were dealing with such a powerful psychic. Here, they're not dealing with a powerful psychic just yet, but it was such an interesting shift from what we went from Proteus to here. And one thing I wanted to know, I said in my summary that the X-Men are clever. When they're fighting the Hellfire Club's henchmen, they have specific equipment to deal with those three specific X-Men. So they're like, wait, we should just switch because they can't counter all of us at the exact same time. And I was like, wow, that's one of the first times I've seen the X-Men do like a team, like clever 
on-the-spot plan. They are at this point a unit that is capable of adaptive work. Kyle, I know you pointed out that that was something that stood out to you right away. Definitely because we're coming from the champions, I'm sure, if nothing else. Oh yeah, the champions would never have figured out how to do that. And I think one of the things that's most interesting is this is still a lot of X-Men. So one of the ways they handle it is they split the team off. It really is helpful that the team is split that Wolverine, Colossus, Storm are kidnapped by Emma, who is being spied on by Kitty, while Nightcrawler, Scott, and Jean are off with Dazzler being spied on by Jason Wingard. Having these two weird- oh, I'm sorry, Xavier is also kidnapped, I'm so sorry. Having these two narratives very clearly separate helps us handle having such an insane number of X-Men. I also need to point out that the cover of 130 maybe slightly makes it look like Dazzler is trying to, I don't know, attack the X-Men with a bunch of exploding ribbon dancers? I don't care. It's beautiful. I love the colors. Love the pastels. Super cool looking. Yeah, I I would say the issue cover is a little misleading, but I do have to say this. I'm kind of in love with Dazzler's design. I think it's absolutely amazing. It certainly is. It is timeless. It is classic. Dazzler has always had an enormously strong gay male following. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure this podcast is exactly up her alley. I mean, it's even the ridiculous over-the-top, very love Dazzler sort of way that Dazzler is written on the first page. (laughs) It's very, this album is my diary kind of handwriting. It's a very special blossom. I love that it looks like the X-Men logo on the cover is rimmed with stage lights, too. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything about it. I never noticed that. Yeah. I want to comment that as soon as the action gets going, they find a way to help us understand how it all comes together. This issue really does bring home how many threads have all been running simultaneously. I do think that the Dazzler stuff mostly lifts out if you had to, but... I don't know. I feel like on my millionth reread of this, I finally appreciate the Dazzler stuff a little bit more. It doesn't make the arc the greatest, but it doesn't detract from it in the ways I always feared it did. This is your first experience with Miss Allison Blair, I believe. The Dazzler. Yes, it is. And I will say she made an interesting impression on me. I don't think her characterization was fully realized yet. But I guess what drew me to her was just, as I said before, it's her design. She looks like a disco pop star. She has a really cool power set. Uh, Nico has told me some of the things that when given a creative writer, Dazzler has one of the most expansive and unique power sets that a mutant can have. And I am just, I was just kind of just floored by the way she was drawn and her power. It was just like everything about her just drew me to her. That's the goal, I think. They wanted to create a dynamic new character. She was actually originally designed as a product tie-in. There were going to be Dazzler Records. So Dazzler really is a product that was designed to lure people in. Kevo, I know this is your first experience with Dazzler as well. Yes, apart from cosplays at Comic-Con, pretty much. Does she live up to the hype? Yeah, mostly. I need to see more from her character. I, I think the inclusion is really cool. I think this introduction is really cool because it makes it a little bit more real that they would just happen to find this person randomly during another side mission, and that person might just be like, no, no thank you, and take off into the night and then have their own adventures. But I'd be curious to see more from the character, for sure. 
And that is the plan. While Dazzler does depart the Dark Phoenix Saga after issue 131, she will go on to be featured in several other Marvel Universe books like Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man, Marvel Team-Up, and ultimately her own series. Now, Kyle, I do believe you and I will be covering that series. Yes, we will. So, Kyle, this was the start of your love affair with the Dazzler. Yes, I'd say that this was the beginning of it. I actually fell more in love with her once we get to the Australian era, but this this was a great introduction for the character. And that's what they had really hoped for from this. Time was not quite so kind to Dazzler. I think Kylie Minogue retroactively made Dazzler cooler somehow, nah. but at the time Dazzler was not warmly received, and I understand why. I do really enjoy so much of the action and the drama in this issue. I think the Hellfire Club are portrayed as competent, scary villains, and I really like looking at Wolverine in a cage. Oh, you mean Wolverine, who's always drawn so specifically that he looks like he's very much just naked? Yeah, he's naked, and he's super hairy, and Colossus is naked, and super not hairy. It's like you get both. It's a great deal. I just, and I love that Storm is, like, the most covered. Really good job, it's, guys. Being it's really, actually really, really surprising. Storm, for once, is not the most naked. And I think it's because she'd feel really comfortable. A common theme that they have, unfortunately, used over and over is that Storm is her most comfortable naked, and at first opportunity, she lightning strikes her clothes off. So, it was really exciting to not see that. It was also really exciting to get to see Kitty Pride very quickly be clever and capable and able to save the X-Men. That Storm understands that she can trust this young woman. It's her only hope. There's something magical. It's this almost sense of choose your own adventure, join in. There's something really cool about Kitty Pride not just being smart enough to hang with the X-Men, but cunning enough and skilled enough. And I like that there's a sense of family between she and Storm right away. It's something that will define the series. Kevo, I know you've seen Kitty Pride and Astonishing, but you don't have a lot of experience with comic book Storm. No, yes, that's very true. Does comic book Storm live up to all the Hollyberry hype? Not just Hollyberry, but the animated series. My claustrophobia. My claustrophobia indeed. It's amazing that she doesn't feel more claustrophobic in these cages. Yeah, but good for her. Overcome your fears. Good for you. I think it's all the slots. Yes. So that does bring us to one of my favorite scenes ever. I love Sebastian Shaw as the priest in Jason Wingard's illusion and the transformation of Jean into the Black Queen. His creepy ass kiss. This whole thing makes you feel unsettled. This is the most unsettling X-Men has become. There's a sense of even the X-Men's resident good girl, Jean Grey, the, as Emma Frost will later call her, sacred cow of the X-Men, that there's something incredible that she is being so violated by this suave man who represents everything Cyclops isn't. It's a really cool scene, for sure. There's something a little bit daytime soap to me about this method of seducing her, using this Harlequin fantasy to draw her in. It's a little 
camp, but I feel like it's still really interesting and dynamic. I'd love to see it adapted to some sort of either animated or live action at some point. I think it could be done really well and atmospheric and really get that point across. That it's mutant dark shadows is actually what works for me. Yeah. And it's contrasted insanely well by Dazzler being this bright, shining thing. If everything going on with the Hellfire Club is this shadowy, dark, atmospheric tone, Dazzler represents this bright contrast, this incredible world of difference in this same mutant picture they're trying to tell. Kyle, this was one of those times where I was like, okay, the champions definitely could not have done this. The champions would not have been able to balance that kind of dynamic storytelling through art by using color as a method of depicting drama and storytelling. Definitely not. Honestly, I don't think that I hate to criticize this the artists, but I think that the art in this just completely portrays everything to a much higher level than what champions was ever capable of doing i just want to remind you that the guy who did this did six issues of champions which it has to do with the connection between storytellers i really think they did something amazing here and it's just something they wouldn't have been able to pull off now jonah with this again this whole thing started because of kurt wagner and Kurt Wagner speaks for the first time to Kitty Pride, who will go on to become one of his closest friends, although they have a, lo- a long rocky road getting there. It It's interesting because I feel like Kurt has played front and center in so many of the stories, and he so barely registers in these three issues. Yeah, it's a little unfortunate, but I understand why. We're setting up for a lot of bigger things with different characters, and unfortunately he's not the central part of this so he doesn't get as much dialogue but he still does some pretty neat Kurt things and he's still trying to be the happy-go-lucky all right family all right team let's do this he's still the charming a little bit cocky and it's still he's still very much him in the very few lines that he does get and I do appreciate that one of my favorite scenes in the entire issue comes right after Nightcrawler's just about only appearance the battle with Dazzler and Jean, those colors, that intensity, there's something disarming about that battle, trying to follow it and trying to look at it. I also love the constant stress on how much more powerful Jean is getting. It really helps set the stage for what's coming. And I find that they're able to pack so much into so little space so well. And the issue ends with Nightcrawler, Scott, Jean, and Dazzler with help from Kitty on their way to save Logan, Colossus, and Storm, and Xavier from Emma and the Hellfire Club, unaware that Jason, Wingard, and the Hellfire Club are already after them. It is that level of, like, circuitous, humorous Sorkinism And I didn't find it hard to follow at all. I felt it was a very clear narrative that laid out through these 40 or so pages. Oh, I completely agree. I don't think anything was said that didn't need to be said. I think story-wise, everything follows a very clean, clear-cut path that, as you said, it's very easy to follow. We know exactly what's going on when we get a really good sense of the two different teams that split off of the X-Men, what was going on during that time and how they're going to merge back together. And I think that's just a testament to Chris Claremont of how well he wrote this arc and these issues. 
I really think this is one of his high points in terms of creativity. One of my all-time favorite Chris Claremont pages ever is the final page of 130. There's something so crippling and frightening about the projection of Mastermind against the wall smoking his cigarette. It's his true shadow. That's something that's been alluded to a few times at this point. And then his laughing into the night that he knows it will be far too late for the X-Men. It's just so dynamic and powerful. And again, it plays on these colors that get in our head. And there's such a passion for color as expression in this story. Once again, the cover is eye-catching. Emma Frost on the cover of 131 is gripping those eyes. And then that first page, Kitty running, bathed in the orange and blue and the shadows. The X-Men looking on, their faces stern and resolved. Everything about the art in these issues, from the color to the pencils. It's one of those moments that the art and the storytelling just fuse together to create such a dynamic exploration of the story content. And I think that's part of why the films have had so much trouble adapting it so far and the tv shows because how do you pull together something so seamless it's watchmen in that regard where the art and the writing are seamless so i find myself so drawn to the art it's the dirt on kitty's face on the second page of 131 it's the yellow explosion around gene I just can't stop talking about the art because i just feel like this is john byrne at the height of his mastery it just has me right away I completely agree with you. I think we start off on a very tense moment of Kitty being chased and it's scary because she's still young and she doesn't fully know what she's capable of and it's really tense and we're like, what's going to happen? And you're so right. The art, the little details they have and that they create help make this small part of the narrative so striking and such a great way to start off an issue. I really think the did such a phenomenal job of having us fear for Kitty and then having her saved. It's so epic. And it's just like, Jean is just... The nightmare that Jean represents when she's using her creepy font, Hmm. contrasted by the comfort she's able to offer Kitty, is one of those ways in which the Clermazon dichotomy of great maternal goddess that can still destroy the universe is constantly redefining the role of women in the superhero comic at this time. Jean using her telepathy to read the Hellfire Goon's mind and get everything she needed. Suddenly, Jean puts together all the other strands of this tapestry of story just in case the reader hadn't gotten there. Now she knows the term Hellfire Club, and it brings up something with her ancestor that she married to a Jason, a Wingard, and what the fuck is happening? And I think there is so much to the clever level of nuance Claremont and Byrne used to shape everything, whether it's the inset Jason Wingard face pressed against Jean's, or it's the cut image of Jean and the Hellfire Goon showing their telepathic symmetry. All of the art is so deliberate, and every story moment that they put all the wording, it really carries me into the fear that I need to have to be part of this story. Speaking of fear, do the henchmen's masks freak anyone else the fuck out? Yes. They're super creepy. One of the things that helps define Emma Frost as a terrifying villain, despite the fact that she spends a good portion of her career 
in comics, a hero uh, to some extent is the outright levels of torture she is willing to put the X-Men through in these three issues. We see her have Storm, who is meant to represent freedom and empowerment and strength and maternal love, shackled up, and then she telepathically attacks her. It's so frightening, and it helps so much that Kitty is drawn so small, and even though Colossus is immense and Logan is immense in his own way, they're both shown diminutively in their cages, so everything about the possibility of the X-Men escaping seems so illogical. Even Logan's nudity in that first page doesn't seem like it's definitive of his feral strength. He seems like a sad caged animal. It isn't until Kitty breaks him out where we get that smirk on his face as he pops his claws at the bottom of the next page, where it's like, fuck yes. Storm, Colossus, and Wolverine don't get to see much action and don't get that much dialogue because they're so busy being chained up and tortured. So having that little moment where Wolverine finally gets to go berserk is pretty nice. Kyle, I know the kind of things we both enjoy. And I have to imagine you enjoyed these pages of Wolverine running amok as much as I did. I very much did. To be honest, there were some points where I was starting to suffer from Wolverine fatigue while I was reading other books in the past. But this right here, this was just, it was great Wolverine. I think the savagery was the kind of thing I love from him. And it's... Also, part of what makes Jean on the coming pages more intense, because we already see that the wild man, Wolverine, is at this point. And then Jean, with that scary-ass fucking font and those shadows under her eyes I keep talking about, says, You're the one and only Emma Frost, the Hellfire Club's white queen. I understand you call yourself something of a telepath. Well, your majesty, let's see how good you really are. Jean Grey might be the scariest motherfucking thing about this entire arc. I think every decision that Claremont and Byrne make with Jean Grey in these pages and in these panels are definitive of the potential that the Phoenix will ultimately achieve. I find myself startled by my favorite character's transformation into a sense of madness. I genuinely fear for Emma Frost. It's really interesting to see Jean like this. It's such a stark difference. And something that Scott points out throughout this is that Jean is acting different. We're seeing her slowly become scarier and scarier and more comfortable with being as powerful as she is. And I think one of my favorite things about this is that we're introduced to the rivalry between Emma Frost and Jean Grey. And I think the, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, Nico, but I think they have probably one of the most legendary rivalries in comics. If Adam Hughes prints have their say. And it, it's so, as you're, you're so right. I think in the Proteus arc, we missed this little bit of Jean because Proteus was so powerful and he was able to have the right power set that just kind of overwhelmed Jean where she couldn't handle it. But here she's kind of able to run free and there's really nothing Emma can do to defend herself. Jean purposely holds back to just match Emma at her level just to scout out what she's going up against. It's really great. It's not even foreshadowing because it's happening right now. Yeah, it's here. Proteus set the bar for how far the book could go, and I believe by pushing Jean as far as it did, it allowed us to see that Jean is at Proteus levels now. This intense 
constant embodiment of the raptor, the giant fiery bird, is devastating. It is destructive. It's powerful and it's terrifying. When Gene unleashes this monster, everyone is in danger. And it's so important that Proteus allowed us to get there. And in fact, there were a lot of strands along the way that allowed us to get there. Mesmero turning all of the X-Men into circus performers made us understand that telepaths can play very powerful mind games. We see it again with Colossus and the Proletarian. Here we have Jason Wingard have put all of these corruptive seeds in Jean's mind while she's already fighting this incredible force, the Phoenix. The way the narrative pulls together tells us so much of where Gene is headed. There's no other way around it. It's a foregone conclusion. The Phoenix is going to have to be reckoned with. She is here and she is terrible. Yeah, it sets up some pretty cool stuff. Not as familiar with Jean Grey as a character of all of the X-Men, of all the Marvel characters. More of the stuff that I've read is after most of the times that she died. So this is some of the first Jean Grey that I'm that I'm reading. And I really get why you latched onto this so hard. I really think that she is an interesting dynamic character. A lot of the stuff from this arc had me interested to read the stuff that came before it and has me psyched to learn more about what's coming after it. I think she's really cool and really amazing. What this arc soured me on is Professor X. He's a prick. I'm not a fan. Professor Xavier is very rarely not a jerk. It is one of the more defining parts of his personality. Professor Xavier thinks that he is very different than Emma Frost, who is also a headmaster of a mutant school. He comes to find that he's not. We frequently see him use the same sort of coercive methods that Emma uses to get her students. I do like that he doesn't put any kind of whammy on Dazzler. I think it's important to let Dazzler be her own person and do her own thing. But there's definitely some creepy things with Stealing Kitty. Can we call it Stealing Kitty? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So guys, that's the first part of the Dark Phoenix saga. I want to let you guys in on a little bit of the story you might not be aware of. At this point in canon, there is no sense that this is a saga. Chris Claremont is not going into this, trying to write what we will come to know as the Dark Phoenix Saga. At this point, he's doing a lot of this without much of editorial noticing what he's been up to. A lot of the changes that will make this some of the most memorable material ever published in comics come at the hands of editorial, who said that Gene's actions here and going forward cause a need for reckoning. So, a lot of the fantastical elements you're seeing, this apex to a darker narrative. This is more of Claremont doing what he's thought he's been doing all along. This is him taking the story to the next level. Jonah, this is really the point at which X-Men makes a turn. This is the dynamic shift from popular book to blockbuster. We started at Giant Sides number one. I promised we were going to get here. How does it feel being halfway through the Dark Phoenix saga and seeing the great and terrible Phoenix come to Earth? It's scary. It's so interesting that Chris Claremont introducing one of the most powerful, deadliest, scariest entities within a universe in a character and what that's going to mean for the X-Men in the upcoming issues to think like he didn't really have an idea of where fully he was going to take it and how it was going to end. It's very interesting because we've seen very powerful things in the uncanny that we've read, but we've never met anything like the Phoenix. So introducing us to this very dangerous cosmic force 
I think it's really cool and it's super interesting and I think it's going to lead to some great storytelling. I completely agree. Kyle, I think we're going to see a massive shift in how these characters, or at least the ones that we're going to follow, Dazzler and ultimately when they show up, Beast and Angel, I think we're going to see a big shift in how they're treated because this changes how the X-Men are treated as a franchise. I'm excited to see some new storytelling with the characters that we're used to. I mean, I know the Dazzler series isn't great, but I'm excited to see more Dazzler. How does it feel having read something that you like? It makes me feel really good. I was, I'll be honest, Champions was very trying, and this made me excited to read some more and keep going, and I want to read all of these other branches of the story that I haven't had a chance to read yet. That's what a good story does. It makes you want to know more about the characters and explore further. Kevo had made a comment that he wanted to see more of Jason Wingard being like, aha, it's illusions. And I'm like, nope, it's there. It's been seeded since like X-Men 120 something. It's incredible. It's been building over time. Kevo, you read Chris Claremont in 1975 trying to figure out how to work a pen. And here we see him having some master strokes. This is a very different story than Captain Britain 1 through 10. How did it feel sinking into one of the most adapted comic book stories ever? Pretty groovy. Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, it's a lot to digest when you put it that way, honestly. I don't blame you. I think that is one of the things that keeps a lot of people at bay from trying to jump into X-Men full force. Guys, it's been a great time talking about Uncanny X-Men with you. Next time we come together, we're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men 132 through 137, finishing off the Dark Phoenix saga before taking a look at the Dark Phoenix Apocrypha. The story of the Phoenix is going to follow over to HTML, where we're going to take a look at the action adaptations of the Dark Phoenix saga in animation and the film franchises. Until then, Kyle, where can your fans find you? You guys can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantus82. Jonah, where can all of your fans find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jonah Rubino and at Instagram at Jonah.Rubino. Kevo, my most common co-host, but least common on this show, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And of course, you can find me on our show over at mcu.html, where you and I discuss the Marvel Cinematic Universe film by film, bit by bit. Where can people find you, Nico? As always, you can find me on Now and Again, where I discuss pop music with my best buddy Chris Podcast. Right now, we're running a special this summer doing Carly Rae Jepsen, The Emotion Minute. It's a really exciting project where we take a look at her discussion and see how it evolved to the perfect pop album Emotion. You can also find me, as Kevo said on HTML, as well as at the comic book we create, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com, where we have hundreds of pages free. I'm over on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And hey, this month, we did a special episode over here on Cage Club, Kevo, Jonah, and I. We did Into the Spider-Verse with Joey and Mike. And that was a lot of fun. You definitely want to check that out. Yeah. So, until the child of light and dark comes for her great reckoning, we will see you guys soon. See ya. See ya. Bye.